Drew McGarry's new book is The Night the Lights Went Out. And some of you may know him from his time at Deadspin. You may know him from his new website, The Defector, and new podcast, The Distraction. Mm. But Drew, let's explain how this book came about because it starts with a really serious accident that we don't really have a bang. It okay, it starts with a bang. I'm gonna let you say it because it was your brain that exploded. Back when I was at Deadspin, we had an annual awards show. It was called the Deadspin Awards in 2018. I was usually the host, and we had it at Urban Plaza in New York. And uh, in 2018, I hosted the show and, you know, went off of that hitch, and we had a nice time. And it was like a party because Deadspin, you know, half the staff was remote, so we didn't really get a chance to, to see each other except this one time a year. So we went, you know, we had the show, went off great. We went to a karaoke bar afterward, sort of like the after party, you know, just with us. And I had a beer, and then I went to go to the bathroom. We had a private karaoke room. I walked out into the bathroom. And the next day I knew I woke up two weeks later in a hospital. I had collapsed and fractured my skull in three places and suffered what's known as subdural hematoma or a brain bleed or a brain hemorrhage. And the people that I worked with at Deadspin saw me on the floor. No one saw me fall. So to this day, no one knows why I fell or if my brain hemorrhage was caused by the fall or vice versa. They saved my life. Uh, I had emergency brain surgery, I believe at 6 a.m., that morning. And I had, I had collapsed at midnight. And when I woke up, I was surrounded by nurses and doctors and family members, but I was still in a fog because I'd been placed in a medically induced coma for two weeks. And when I came out of that, I was still high as shit on fentanyl and, and all the other drugs that they give you to induce that coma. And so my time in the hospital, I stayed in the hospital for three more weeks to rehab. And all of that time is sort of, the memory is like shrapnel. There's pieces of it on the floor. I hallucinated a great deal. And those memories are as real to my mind as the stuff that was real. And so I had a hard time understanding what had happened. Everyone else, you know, around me saw me collapse and saw me almost die. And I was the only person who was not party to that. And so it was this weird situation after the fact where I just sort of re-engineer my trauma through them to get a better understanding of what exactly. I had been through and what they had had to go through to save my life and to get me back upright and like alive again. And that was a bit of a process. It was, uh, it was not an easy process, but here I am today speaking to you. So that's good. I have to say, listening to the podcast and reading your byline now, I would actually be hard pressed to know that you actually suffered a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've done a good job. Cosmetically speaking, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know because my injury was to my head. I fractured my skull. Those were internal injuries. There was blood, but it was through my scalp and my hair has grown over it ever since then. If you shaved my head, it would be a train wreck. Like it would not look good, but thankfully my hair has grown over it. So there's not really a trace of it, save for the cochlear implant on the right side of my head. But that came quite a bit later after my accident, a bit of a, bit of a souvenir. Oh, we are going to talk about your souvenir. Yeah. You have written a parenting blog, as it were, for Deadspin. And are you continuing that with The Defector at all? I do write about parenting for Defector, but I don't write about as much. It's easier to write about new kids when you have them. Because first of all, it's new to you. So everything's like, what the hell's going on? Secondly, it's a baby. And really, you can't hurt a baby's feelings. Like, the, you know, the baby can't read that, doesn't care. Now, like my children, they're 15, 12, and 9. They have a much greater understanding of the world. They're online. So I'm less inclined to, to hop online and be like, guess what a 15-year-old did? I caught her drinking. Oh, my God. And, you know, and stuff like that. Because 
I am conscious of the fact that they have their own lives and I have to re- respect those. And, you know, that's a bit hypocritical of me because, you know, I, I wrote one parenting book and of course my family is featured prominently in this book. And there is that sort of gross writer dynamic you feel where you use your life in your writing. And sometimes it feels as if uh, the cart's leading the horse when the, you're, you know, you're living certain episodes of your life in order to write about them. Or you're, you know, you're sort of war profiteering off of yourself. Like it's, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you about my injury to sell you a book about my injury. It's me commodifying my own injury, but I swear I wrote it because I wanted to write it. <laughs> it's a really personal book, though. You do not leave stuff out. There are moments where you do not come off as the hero in your own story, even though no. you are walking and talking and parenting and all of this kind of stuff and writing again, which is great. When did you decide you were actually going to do this? Do the book? Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So it was funny because when I collapsed, I was two chapters away from finishing my third novel, which is called Point B. And I was in the hospital and I was like, I'm going to finish that goddamn book. And I'm going to get out of this bed and I'm going to get back to writing. And I did. I got back and I finished that book. I said to my age, I finished the book. It's the most triumphant story in publishing. Let's get it out there and and let's make a billion dollars because now it's the greatest story ever told. And no publisher bought it. (laughs) Not one of them. It was crickets for like a year. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, shit. And uh, I ended up self-publishing Point B and and ended up getting an option for TV and film. So it had a happy ending anyway. But I remember when I was sitting in the doldrums, I really wanted to write another book because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And my agent had said to me, you know, to maybe I could write about my injury, but I was in a spot before that conversation where I really wanted to put it behind me. I didn't even really want to acknowledge that it existed. And of course, the irony was, of course, that the more I tried to do that, the more prominent it became. But also what happened was I had souvenirs. I can't smell anymore. Uh, I lost a good sense of my taste, you know, enough that you would have thought I had long COVID or something like that. And I went deaf. And so what was to me a you know a relatively at least in terms of storytelling a, a a tidy story of me collapsing and having my wife and my coworkers save my life and me getting up and getting out of the hospital and, and getting to write again uh, was a bit more involved than that and the the other thing was that because I was in a coma for two weeks and because I was hallucinatory afterward I didn't have the ability to really understand what had happened which is why I had to go back and and interview the people that were there including my family and including the doctors that operated on me for the book. And it was necessary for the story, but also it was a fundamentally important thing for me to do in terms of recovery, you know, to to really have a grasp on it because there were questions that I did not ask for a while, either because I didn't want to know about it or I didn't want to burden my family with it. Like to this day, my mom, my mom read the beginning of the book, but it's not finished it and won't finish it. My sister won't read it because they didn't want to relive those parts of their lives. But it was clear that there was a fuller story there than just the original post I had written about it on Deadspin uh, May of 2019. There, were, there was more to it than that. And it became clear that it could be a book. I've written the book and I've reread it so many times. And I've told the story to people that I am personally sick to death of it, which is the, you know, sort of the optimal outcome, right? That you get over it. But, you know, to a, to a new person, they're always like, holy shit, <laughs> right? So it's, it really, I remember finishing the book and I was like, that's a hell of a goddamn story. Like, you know, it happened to me, but a lot of times with books, I'm able to step out of my own sort of 
ego. The ego's still there plenty, but I'm able to sort of observe it at a distance. And it, it's a wild story. I mean, it's just nuts that I was essentially struck by lightning. And to this day, we don't know why. And the recovering from both the physical and the existential aspects of it has been, been quite something. You talk a lot in the book about wanting to get back to who you were yes. before the accident. And honestly, that's just not possible. And you wrestle with this in a way, well, let's say it's not particularly flattering to you. No, I was a bastard. You know, and this is very, very typical of people who have suffered a traumatic brain injury. Like you'll see it in dramatic fashion on like Grace Anatomy. Like someone will take an arrow to the dome and then all of a sudden they hate fried food. But that is actually based in some semblance of reality where I bruised the temporal lobe of my brain. I injured it and damaged it. And that controls your emotions and inhibits fury. And I was in this very weird spot because I was acting out. But in my mind, everything I was doing was both justified and normal. And I had no sense really until I went to therapy that I was this way or that I could be different. And now I see it with much, much fresher eyes. But but I, you know, for the book, it would be a shitty book if I had withheld any of myself. It's bad writing when you do that. You have to make yourself vulnerable because you're giving that part of yourself to the reader. And a lot of times what happens is it, there's a risk, you know, someone might criticize you or, or say something shitty about you. But what I've found in my career is that usually when I've opened myself up to readers, they open themselves back. And there's an exchange and a connection there that is invaluable. And it's, it's why I do what I do. There's also a connection to how we view masculinity in this country and in our society. Sure. And that vulnerability, certainly, or weakness, or any show of trauma outwardly. Yeah. You know, you see it now, you know, particularly with the advent of the internet. You know, nobody on the internet likes to be called wrong in public, particularly men, right? Uh, they don't like to be seen as, as weak or incapable. You know, that's a that's a big one. And that's a big one among senior citizens. You know, they, they like to do everything themselves. I don't need a, a stepladder to get up and get this cereal box and stuff like that. And I had that after I got hurt. And I had that basically from before I got hurt. You know, I was raised in the 80s. I was raised on hair metal and very, very basic stuff. You know, you're a guy and you're supposed to do bro thing out of man cave and you know, you're supposed to, you know, sleep with as many women as possible, you know, and I'm thinking all this when I'm like 14, you know, it's like, I have no semblance of what life ought to be. The good news I think is that I don't, I don't think my sons and my daughter are being raised necessarily in that kind of world. There's still bad things in the world and there's still obviously shitty men out there, but there is a prominent counterbalance against that. That was not there when I was growing up, or if it was there, it was quite routinely ignored, particularly by mass culture. And I realize I'm asking you this and you're a diagnosed amnesiac, but I am. What did you learn writing this book? What did you learn about you? What did you learn about writing? What did you learn about your place in the world? Well, the one thing that I, I learned was that some of the things that I remembered, like, so for example, when I had to spend Christmas in the hospital, I was still recovering in the hospital. And in my mind, in my own memory, it was a nice Christmas. I was lying there. The kids came. They put up some decorations. They gave me a couple of presents. They gave me a shirt that fit because I had lost 30 pounds while in a coma. Nothing was too, too small, which is always a nice feeling. And I was like, oh, that was very nice. And then when I talked to my wife about it and to my parents about it, they were like, 
oh no, you're awful. You were not happy to see us. It was a really tough Christmas for us. You know, we were staying, you know, in an Airbnb in New York and decorating it and pretending it was home, but it wasn't. And, you know, it gave me a much fuller picture of how I had acted and, you know, what they had been through. I was talking to my friend, Matt Ufford, who works at ESPN, and he told me something for the book. It didn't end up in the book, but he said, you know, one of the things that he discovered when he had kids was sort of the joy of the phrasing for him was uh, receding from the foreground of your own life, right? You let other people take center stage. I have been very bad about that. I'm talking to you right now on a podcast and, you know, I'm still very much needy attention wise, but since I got hurt, I think I have done what I can, and it's still always a work in progress to understand and listen to other people and really listen to them and not just automatically think about what my response is or, or how it affects me or, or any of that stuff, but to simply let other people be, because that's what I'm always asking is a dad, just leave me alone. And, and you know, it's, it was up to me to leave well enough alone with other people. And that's still something that, you know, I grapple with as a matter of, of routine. I realized that my personality will never be perfectly formed. We're all destined to be incomplete. And there's a joy in taking comfort in understanding that and realizing that there's always going to be work to be done, but that you can do the work and that you can see some improvement as you go. So it's it's nice that I learned that there are, there's still so much I have to learn about other people. And in doing so, I learn more about myself. That's a bit corny, but it's true. Corny is okay. Corny is okay. I embrace the corn. You make a living off of dad jokes. I do make a living off of dad jokes. That's right. It's my it's my right and and my privilege to make dad jokes. Somebody's got to do it. It will be you because it's my, not uh, going to be me. <laughs> my standard one is like my wife will touch the, like a pan on the stove. She's like, "Ooh, that's hot!" And I'm like, "You're hot!" And she's like, "Oh my god!" She's a brave woman. <laughs> she's a brave, brave yeah. woman to live with within arm's reach of that much dad jokery. But yes, that's like the best of it. <laughs> you also talk a lot about the fact that your ailments, you are deaf, you have lost your sense of smell, you have lost your sense of taste, and your sense of smell and your sense of taste are also connected to memory, which they I think are. a lot of people don't think about how they connect. So you've actually given up pieces of yourself in a way that do, in fact, qualify you as disabled. I was, I was happy I got a museum it. discount for being a disabled person like a few months ago. I was like, can I get the disabled? And they were like, yeah. I was like, oh my. I was like, ooh, should I take this? Like, am I being... Uh, am I disabled enough going to the museum and getting five bucks off? But yes, I, I think I am. But you wrestle with this because you're standing in this place where you want people to acknowledge that damage has been done, but it's not visible. That's right. And it's I think it's a, it's a common theme among disabled people to not want to be defined by what they can't do, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody And nobody, no, no able-bodied person wants that. I think I, I struggled for a long time against myself, defining myself by what I couldn't do. You know, when I went deaf, I was thinking about the fact that I was deaf a lot. When I realized I couldn't smell, I was like, oh, I I gotta get this back. I have to get this back. Because those things I felt were intrinsic to my identity. And it turned out to not be the case that I could forge a new identity and live comfortably and adjust to the disabilities that I have and be comfortable with the person that I am as a result. It took years. Getting back to work for you as a writer was a huge part of your recovery. And you do say in multiple points in the book that, you know, obviously recovery is not a straight line and you're zigging when you think you're going to zag and it's not a process to be managed. You just kind of have to go through it. Yeah. If you're like me, the first time that you realize it's not a straight line and you have that little dip, 
you're so angry and so frustrated and so annoyed. Like any setback is unforeseen and like a gross inconvenience. I remember when I first got hurt, when I came out of the coma and my brother told me this, you were annoyed <laughs> that I remember feeling annoyed. I remember feeling inconvenienced. Like, oh, I got shit to do. Like, get me out of this hospital. And everyone was like, Drew, you almost died. You need to chill out for a second. But I, I didn't like You started your career in advertising. Were you a copywriter? Yeah. So I started out as an account executive aspiring to be a copywriter. Okay. okay. And I made the switch over to being a copywriter. And that was like the big dream come true. Like I was willing to do that for the rest of my life. I was like, oh my God, I can write a TV ad for like Nike one day. Holy shit. That would be amazing. That was the early 2000s. And then Blogger and Blogspot came along. And, you know, the the idea that I could self-publish blog posts, that was not something that it occurred to me in the past, and I remembered when my daughter was born, I set up a little blog spot site to make some jokes because I, you know, I tried to stand up and failed at it, but I had material. And I remember saying to my wife, well, you know, there's, there's something to this, maybe, you know, I don't know. And then there was indeed something to it. And I always remember that fondly. That was pretty cool. Is that how you ended up writing for Deadspin? Yeah, I was a commenter at Deadspin. And I had started a football site with one of the other commenters called Kissing Susie Kober and the guy, Will Leach, who ran Deadspin, liked the site and then invited me to do a column. And then that became a job a few years later. And then we all quit that job a few years after that. Part of why I bring up your history as a writer is because you say multiple points in the book, I needed to get back to work in order to feel better. So what does writing mean for you? I mean, you've touched on it a little bit in earlier answers in this conversation, but what does it mean to you to be a writer? It's hard for me to articulate it because the standard line from writers, they're very dramatic about it. They're very annoying about it. They treat it like a burden. Every day they're like, oh, I had to throw out five pages today. Oh, the life of a writer. Oh. And for me, it's never been like that. It's always just been a very easy way to organize my mind and get everything down that I'm thinking. And in, in fact, it leads how I think now. I, I tend to think in, in writing and vice versa, because it's always, you know, blogging is talking with your fingers. And so every time that I don't write, my mind feels flabby and out of shape, if that makes sense. And then I get back from a vacation or something. And I get back in the groove and it, it's just a rhythm of, of my life that I enjoy and I, I don't like being without because it, it keeps my mind, my mind, you know, uh, it keeps it organized and tight. And I feel, I feel great about, you know, how I think about things when I write. And then the other thing is that it's just fun. There's, there's, there's no end to what you can write. So you never know what stories you're going to come up with or what turns a phrase. And sometimes you write garbage and that's fine. Not everything's going to be gold. And sometimes you're only as good as the last thing you wrote, but then something else comes along and there are times when I'll read my old stuff and I'll be like, oh, I wrote that. That's pretty nice. That's a pretty good job. And it's nice to have that back there. It's nice to have that record of your, not only your existence, but sort of uh, the pathways of your intellect sitting there. You've written five other books. A couple of them are nonfiction, yes. um, but I really want to talk to you about the novels because they're more on the fantasy sci-fi sort of things, which are yeah. wildly different from what you're doing at your day job. Yes, I have a very weird library. It's true. I want to talk to you about that weird library. So for those of you who are listening, the postmortal 
was 2011. It was a finalist for the Philip K. Dick and the Arthur C. Clarke Awards, which is a pretty big deal. Didn't and then win, which is an injustice. That's okay, but it's nice to be nominated. It remember? was pretty cool. It was not. <laughs> the hike in 2017, which sounds like a terrifying blend of folk tales <laughs> and video games and Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Point B. Yep. which you self-published, which I didn't realize until I was doing my homework for this, that you had self-published this novel. So can we talk about your life as a writer of science fiction? Yes. Is it is it technically science fiction? Or are you more fan? I think you're more fantasy, aren't you? Well, I mean, it, they, they, they hopscotch, right? Like you, okay. you would say post-mortal and point B are probably firmly in science fiction and the hike okay. is more in the realm of fantasy because there's no science in the hike, right? Like okay. science fiction is, okay, well, the world is like this because of you know the the advent of, of this or you know the evolution of, of that. And the hike is just a batshit insane fantasy story about a guy plunged into a world of winged demons and things like that. You can easily drop them into boxes. I remember when I wrote the novels, I remembered an interview that someone had done with George R. R. Martin, and he was a TV writer before he wrote Game of Thrones. When he wrote Game of Thrones, he's like, Well, I don't have to worry about someone telling me they can't afford this shoot or go to this location. I can just write where I want and have it be as big as I want. And so then he wrote it with that vastness in mind that he could basically do anything on the page. And that was very freeing to me. That The hilarious thing, of course, that it became a TV show with an unlimited budget. But you know, the idea that, that you can tell a story and that you are the god of the story. And if you want there to be a 10-foot giant woman who makes chili out of people, that can be there. And you sometimes paint yourself into corners and you got to get out of them. And that's a bit frustrating, but you're always in control of it. And it's your world and you get to live in it. And that has always been what's been exciting for me is that, you know, this world that we live in is not always terribly pleasant. And in my headspace with a novel like The Hike, I can go into The Hike and I can just sort of live there for a little bit. And of course, bad things happen to the protagonist, but it's fantastical. So I know it's not real, but I can just sort of live there instead of here. And that's always very nice. So when you're writing fiction, how does that start for you? Are you starting with just the idea? Are you saying, I want to just do this and see what happens? Or do you have a character? Do you have a world? Do you have an image that you start with? It's terrible. I do it all wrong. I don't outline. Like I have a pathological allergy to outlines. I don't like outlining anything. So like with the postmortal, I just started writing and I remembered that the postmortal is an epistolatory novel because it was my first novel. I was like, well, look, if I break this into, you know, a, a series of blog posts and, and short chapters and stuff like that, it won't feel as daunting as just a straight novel. And so that was how I started writing that novel. And if you read the postmortal toward the end, a lot of the epistolatory story stuff falls away and the chapters get a little bit longer. And you can see, you can see me sort of learning to be a novelist in real time. And that was what I carried over to the hike. And the hike was based on something that really happened to me. I was actually abducted by a winged demon. No, I stayed at a hotel in a spooky part of Pennsylvania. And I went on a hike in a forest that was utterly unpopulated. You know, I played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. And I was, uh, you know, I always, whenever I walked into the woods, I was always thinking I'd find like a, a portal to some other world or something like that. And, you know, here was a, an actual, you know, sort of hike that I took where just the surroundings of it and the circumstances of it, all of a sudden there was a vein I could tap. And what happens is there's an idea. And if the idea is big enough, you can ride it like a wave and it goes. Now, that hasn't always happened. Point B comes from the ashes of two other novels I started and got like 30,000 words in and could not 
finish. And then I was like, well, I, I like this idea and I like these characters and I like this scene. And so I like borrowed here and there. And then I, I had a piece about my old prep school because I went to a prep school called Exeter that I was doing for a magazine and that piece got spiked and I had all this material on it. And I realized, well, wait, this school could be the center of the novel and be the base of operations for the novel. And then everything started to make sense because what's nice about a novel is you're always told, and this is like the, the creative writing class shit from college where it's, you know, write what you know, which is always kind of shitty advice. It's more like if I had written the hike about me just walking by a hotel and being underwhelmed by the hike that I took, that's boring. But if there's a man wearing the face of a dog chasing me with a knife, if I introduce that element, all of a sudden what I've experienced has a bit of a, a bit more theater to it. You can take your life and you can augment it, you know, really any way you want. It can be things that you experienced, but you can twist it a little bit where it's like, you know, how is it an even more exciting tall tale to tell people if I tell it to people? What have you learned writing novels? I think the biggest thing I learned, and I'm still working on this, is, I think we get this wrong, but I think it was James Elroy who said, don't use adverbs, right? And I don't. Elmore Leonard. Elmore Leonard. So Elmore Leonard. Ad- yeah. Yeah. So I, he said, don't use adverbs. And, you know, I'm very skeptical of that advice. But you do, you do learn that all the power is in the nouns and the verbs, like all of them. And the novelists who are best, there is an economy there. They don't need a lot of words to paint you a picture because the nouns and the and the verbs are so strong and so metaphorical that you, you automatically know where you are. I'm still relying a lot on similes and stuff like that. And I'm still working on character building. But that was another thing was there's a good amount of me and the protagonist of the postmortal. There's a good amount of the, me and the protagonist of the hike but less so in point B, learning how to live as other people. It's almost like acting. That takes time, but that's been one of the more fun parts of being a novelist for me, because just as you can spend some time in a different world when you're writing a novel, you can spend your time sometimes as like a completely different person. And that's kind of fun. You don't have to be yourself for a little bit. Who's on your bookshelves? Oh God, I can show it to you now. Right now it's all, there's all parenting books or, uh, my books are on there, which is terrible. But like, I read a ton of nonfiction. So it's like Hampton Sides and Candace Millard and historians like that. Like, I'm very big into that because a lot of times those people, like Eric Larson too, like a lot of novels, you see the writing, which I don't care for. You can tell that they're trying to win a Nobel Prize. And with a lot of good historical nonfiction, they don't want to get in the way of the story. What they have found is... So extraordinary in itself. Like, just you take Devil in the White City, right, by Eric Larson. It's a perfect book. And the reason it's a perfect book is because he knew the story was so good. You know, all he had to do was give it to you, you know, sort of in the right way. And the story told itself. And, you know, that was also something, frankly, that I I learned with this book was that I died and then came back to life. The story writes itself. I don't do anything. I just have to make sure that I don't fuck it up by, like, making it 500 pages instead of 200, you know what I mean? So those are the people who sit on my bookshelf. Like I, I have other favorite books like The Road and Carter Beats the Devil and stuff like that. In general, what I'm always looking for is for the, the pages to fly and everything to move. And, you know, that sounds like, oh, I just want a page turner, but it's halfway between fine literature and an airplane book where I'm going to blaze through this thing, but it's going to stick afterward. That's what I'm always looking for. I've always been a reader, right? My wife is a much better reader than me. My wife will 
plow through a book a week and I'm not that kind of person. And I should be, and it sucks that I'm not. Every year, my New Year's resolution is to read more books. I always read for pleasure, but I also, I read to rest. It's the best thing to do before you fall asleep, right? It's not even a question. And so when I read, I'm reading for pleasure, but really it's it's a matter of, of relaxation. And I'm not doing it, it sounds weird, but I'm, I'm not doing it out of ambition. Does that make sense? Like I'm reading just to sort of chill out and sort of be with the story and be somewhere else for a while. I don't stare at the stack of books next to my nightstand and have any angst. I don't pressure myself with reading. Do you read more than one book at once? Or are you just, you're sticking you know, with one book? I've done that before and it sucks. Like I, I usually like to finish them, but I, I did have a, a point earlier this year where I was halfway through like three or four books and I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is terrible. Don't do that. Because then you feel like you're cheating on one book with another. So oh, no, I don't. <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel disloyal. I don't. I've always got multiple books going, but I mean, I'm also a bookseller. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You have an excuse. Slightly different approach to reading than some people, but. No wrong way to. I honestly, I believe that. Read what you're going to read, read where you're going to read, read however. I would rather hear that you connected with a book, whatever it is. I've walked into people's houses and they haven't had bookcases and it makes me nervous. <laughs> I just don't understand. I do do my best to pass them on. Like yeah. We have the little free library. We put them in mm-hmm. there because it's very rare that I reread a book. Like There are certain mm-hmm. books like The Road and like Ulysses where I do want them on hand because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I will refer to them and certain nonfiction books where like if I'm writing something, I'll be like, oh, I remembered something in a book. And that always is great. Like it's mm-hmm. like one of the one of the tricks we learn is that, you know, it's great if you can dive into something you read to almost lead off a piece of your own. So I, you know, I, I like having those on hand. I do like to to pass on the things I've read. I don't need them necessarily around. But in terms of reading, yeah, I'm definitely a quality over quantity guy. Like if I'm gonna read it, it better be better be good. I don't want to read a bad book. I can't do it. I respect that. I can't do it either, but. But I bet you've had to. <laughs> uh, yes. And I'm just going to dodge that completely. <laughs> <laughs> the more you read, the smarter you are. You published a novel after a traumatic brain injury. You're publishing a memoir after a traumatic brain injury. Yes. You are part of the team that launched The Defector, which is a website. We're taping this in advance of publication. Yes. So we're taping this on the one year anniversary of The Defector. Yes, it's Defector's one-year anniversary. That's correct. Happy birthday to us. Well, actually, I just came from the birthday party last night. Mm-hmm. And we could afford to have a birthday party. So that was like a big thing. That, like we made enough money where we could like have a company event and like pay our travel buddies and like act like a real company. We were like, holy shit, I can't believe we can do this. It's cool. But voice is an incredibly important piece of the defector, which is why I raise it. It's got a very distinct voice on the page. I know when I'm reading one of your pieces. I may have actually read about football because of you once or twice. I've heard that from other people, and that's always the coolest thing to hear. I I, I I don't give a shit about football, but I liked reading that. That's always great. Not a lot, but enough where I'm like, I've read about football because of this guy. That's fine. I totally, so, I'm totally jazzed about it. You're not writing on a daily basis though for Defector, right? You're you're still weekly with them or how are, how does that work? Well, my posts do not go up every day, but every day I'm I'm in our Slack channel and thinking about posts to do. And so, you know, and it's my salary job. So it is essentially a day-to-day job. I also I'm on contract as a correspondent over at sfgate.com. And so them, it's a hard set once a week. Defector, it's a bit more loosey-goosey because I, you know, I have certain features that run once a week, particularly during the NFL season. Writing for me 
never stops. It was, it was Walter Mosley who said, you know, I write in the morning and then in the afternoon I, I percolate. And that's the perfect description for it because during the day I'm writing and then when I'm not writing, and no matter what I've written that day or where I'm writing from, I'm always, always thinking, you know, if, if something comes to me, it goes in the notebook right away. I'm always uh, vigilant of what could be useful and what could be not. And if you write enough, you don't have to force that. It just comes. And it's it's really just a matter of Bob Mould, the, the musician, said, you know, for him, like writing songs is like catching rain. And when you're on a good run, it can feel like that. Like, you know, you're sort of like, okay, get it down and, and, and things will naturally sort of assemble themselves after the fact. So what have you been reading recently and recommending? I am reading the biography of Vincent Van Gogh. And it's really long. It's really long. And he doesn't even start painting good shit until you're like 60% through it. And he's like pissed off every single member of his family multiple times. And so I'm reading this book and I'm learning a ton. And my wife's a painter, so it's like useful in that regard too. But also I'm like, I don't know if I can spend another few hundred pages with this this guy because he's so annoying. And he was a very, very sick man. So I know that, you know, I, I know that part of it. And, you know, it's also interesting because he spent his entire life, you know, trying to will into existence stuff from his imagination that could not be real and eternally battled with the fact that his life never lived up to his imagination. And he's sort of the ultimate artist in that way. But, you know, it, it can be it can be a bit, of a bit of a grind to get through that. But you learn a lot. What did you learn self-publishing? That it's a pain in the ass. Like in terms of I heard a man named Dennis to do the cover and we had to resubmit it to certain websites to match the cover specs and it would be rejected over and over again. And I had to format my own Word document so that it looked like the pagination of, of a book, like interior. I had, you know, I had to design the interior of the book. And at one point, I almost hit publish on point B before I realized I didn't put page numbers on there. So people would have gotten a book that had no goddamn page numbers in it. So you're getting into the nitty gritty basics of sort of engineering a book in a way that, you know, I had taken for granted because all the books before that, that I had done, have been published by publishing houses. You know, I always was thankful and grateful for the work, but you learn a new appreciation for it when you're doing all that work. And I had to do all that work and it was a pain in the ass. The other thing is that you become very obsessive over the book itself because you're in charge over the copy editing and the fact checking. That's more if it's nonfiction. And the characters and everything has to be just so, because you can't just be like, well, my copy editor missed that. That's you. So everything's on you. You know, I became very, very obsessive about point B. I, I stay that way for a while and, and not that way anymore because I have other books to tend to. Drew, what do you really want readers to know about your memoir? I think the only thing I would say is that, you know, I went deaf as the result of my injury. And I did not grasp the extent and breadth of hearing loss in the United States and how untreated it goes. And I spoke to a woman at Mount Sinai who was in charge of the audiology department. I was talking to her about vertigo that I had experienced. Uh, and I, I wrote a separate article about that for Men's Health. And she was pleading with me to you know, please note that everyone needs to get their hearing checked and, and address their hearing problems. Because if you don't address your hearing problems, it can be depression. It can lead to a shorter lifespan and tens and tens of millions of Americans either don't know they have hearing loss or don't care and don't understand how much better their lives could be simply by improving it. In part because, you know, we don't treat it the same way we treat vision loss. Vision loss is extremely common. It's three times more common than hearing loss. But that still means that 40 million people have hearing loss every year. And it's not just old people. It's, it's young people like me. And 
You know, you think of hearing aids as sort of like old man shit. And I would like, if there's anything to result from this book, apart from, you know, me selling a bazillion copies and becoming world famous and, you know, having President Biden be like, what that? That was such a good book. It's for more awareness of hearing loss in the United States. You know, use of hearing aids and, and cochlear implants, in my instance, has been a literal lifesaver. And I would wish that improvement for everyone else's life. Drew McGarry, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The new book is The Night the Lights Went Out, and it is out now. Thank you so much for having me on. And now it's time for your TBR Top Off. It's the segment where we recommend three books to add to your to-be-read stack based on today's interview. My name is James. Hi, everyone. I'm Margie. And we are here to talk about three books that we're going to add to your to-be-read stack based on today's interview with Drew McGarry and his new book, The Night the Lights Went Out. So I'm excited because I'm going to recommend, Margie, a nonfiction book. You know how on brand that is for me. I know we've been like, which nonfiction book are we going to go for here? (laughs) I'm a big nonfiction reader. And so I'm excited for the opportunity to bring one in for you. So I'm going to go back to uh, to 2007. This is still in print and still in paperback and still a hugely influential book. It is by Norman Doidge and is called The Brain That Changes Itself. And it's one of those books for cognitive science that really put the plasticity of the brain and how amazing the brain is and its ability to change uh, on the map for a lot of readers. So people whose mental limitations or brain damage were seen as unalterable. Um, He has an example in here of a woman born with half a brain that rewired itself to work as whole, blind people who learned to see, disorders cured, and IQs raised, um, and many other examples of how the brain can surprise us. So I recommend it because it's a lot of fun for me to read about cognitive science and how little we know about the brain and how much we are learning even year to year and how much we've learned even since this book came out in 2007. But still a great read, The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch. And Margie's got two more for us. Thank you, James. So that one is about cognitive science in general. I have two uh, recommendations today that are more about personal stories of people whose brains did change. The first one I want to recommend is called My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. It is by Jill Bolt-Taylor. Jill is a 37-year-old brain scientist when she experiences a massive stroke in the left hemisphere of her brain. So she cannot walk or talk or read. She can't write. She's losing her memory. And it's that difference between the intuitive right side of your brain and the logical left side of your brain. So this stroke took place in the left hemisphere of her brain, meaning that her right hemisphere kind of took over for a little bit. And she was completely surprised by this sense of well-being and peace. So it takes her eight years to fully recover from this. She's got to learn how to do everything over again, as a lot of stroke victims do. But she decided that after her stroke, she would look more into the brain chemistry, since she's a brain scientist, about why that would be and how stepping, she calls it stepping to the right, to kind of give you that feeling of euphoria and well-being that is often sidelined by brain chatter on your left side, Mm -hmm. trying to make you think of all the things that you've got to do. 
Jill Bolt Taylor has been on Oprah. She gives a really, really excellent TED Talk. Uh, So this one is a really inspiring testimony. It's a great story about getting over a brain injury and also uh, a personal growth book about finding an inner peace and how that inner peace is accessible to anyone. The other book that I want to do, I'm very excited about because he's one of my favorite people. Mike Berbiglia, who you may know from... Stand-up comedy. Yes, we love Mike Perfectly. <laughs> from stand-up comedy from NPR. He was in that amazing movie about improv that I can't think of the name of right now. My sister will be so mad at me. <laughs> but Mike Perfectly is a genius. He's a brilliant author and just a really, really great performer. So this book is called Sleepwalk With Me. He did a one-man show that is called Sleepwalk With Me, and this book is based off of that. It is about his sleeping condition. So he's got this weird sleep problem where he can get violent. He can climb things. He can just do the most random stuff. He'll eat random things. He'll do all this random stuff. And unfortunately, he's got the kind of problem where he can actually hurt himself or others. So he sleeps in a sleeping bag with mittens on Somebody else zips up the sleeping bag so he can't get out of it. And it's just so interesting. But in this book, Sleepwalk With Me, he talks about how this problem progressed. And when he finally decided that it was time to get some help, with do- which does have something to do with La Quinta Inn in Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> he also talks about kind of threaded through the whole story of his problems with sleep is his first love, his first serious relationship, his beginnings in stand-up comedy. He is hilarious and also extraordinarily heartfelt. Um, He just writes a heck of a book. And this one was great. I have listened to Sleepwalk With Me and read the book. So I recommend both. All right. Yes, we love Mike Birbiglia. Absolutely. Some great recommendations. So add those to your TBR list uh, right now. And as you're picking up that new Drew McGarry book, uh, these will give you a lot to work on uh, for the fall. So thanks for joining us today on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast and your TBR top off. My name is James and you can follow me on Instagram at James Reading Books. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Book Brain. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.